turn to Romans chapter 2. The book of Romans chapter 2. From really 118 to 425, Paul is uh, basically trying to tell us that, or tell the Christians in Rome what he's trying to tell us, that unless we, the church, unless we recognize the problem, unless we understand sin and what it has done, and continues to do in us, in our flesh, we will not recognize the solution, which even for Christians, the solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is making the case that the whole human race is infected with a disease to such an extent and of such gravity that the only thing that can cure it is divine intervention, is a miracle. And that miracle needs to keep happening for us in the gospel. Paul proclaims that there's no way out of the human predicament he described in 118 to 32 apart from what God did in Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that we cheapen grace when we don't sufficiently address the issue of sin. And we sometimes tend to evangelize people with the message that they'd feel a lot better and life would go a lot easier if, if they, and it would make a lot more sense if they just accepted Jesus and the point of receiving Christ is not to feel better that doesn't mean that that won't happen or, or that life won't change but the point of the gospel the point of salvation ultimately is to be saved from eternal wrath and if people don't realize that if we don't realize that's what we're facing right that's the main issue here it will be all too easy to dismiss the remedy. And for Christians, we tend to start thinking the gospel is for unsaved people. It's to get you in the door of life with God, but this is not the case. Paul is eager, remember, as he said earlier in chapter 1, to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome, because the gospel is the cure for what they're going through as Christians. And Paul starts here with Christians. That is who is receiving this letter. He's talking to believers, at least professing believers, but believers the whole time. And the first thing he does in Romans is lay this rock-solid foundation for the presentation of the gospel to Christians by putting a magnifying glass on the ongoing issue of sin, which is idolatry. And he describes the human mess in such terms that we are meant to realize, okay, nobody gets out from under this, not on this earth. I know that we sing the song, and I love the song, Amazing Grace. I, I love it. I was blind, but now I see a little, a little, right? Paul teaches us one of the most fundamental truths of the faith in the opening chapters of Romans. The notion that human beings are fundamentally good, that has to die. It has to die, or the gospel won't shine in all its intended brightness. And so Paul is going to build on the truth that no human being has an excuse before God, especially not those who have more knowledge of God than others. In other words, people like us sitting in here this morning. If we were honest with ourselves, given what we know as Christians, the light that we've had shine on us, the opportunities we've had, all the things we've learned about the Bible and Christianity, and some of us have had the huge advantage of an upbringing in a Christian home or a stable home even. If we were honest with ourselves, we'd be much more humble people as Christians because we should be better people, and we aren't. We are not as good as we should be. If you don't believe that this morning, I cannot help you. And my preaching will never do anything for you. The acknowledgement of our ongoing sinfulness and culpability before God is not meant to destroy us. Not by any means. It's meant to raise and renew the awareness of our ongoing need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the impartiality of God is what Paul is about to speak of as both judge and savior. He's impartial in both. Is meant to lead us to constant repentance as those who are called by his name. So let me pray 
and we'll get to the passage here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've revealed to us. God, may your spirit move in us and for us that we might hear and believe and receive with humility and brokenness this word that we are all equally in such desperate need to hear. We ask that you would help me preach to this end, that you would speak through me rather than me trying to talk about you. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1 in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul told us in 118 and 19 that the wrath of God is being revealed in the world right now against all the ungodly wickedness of people. He has given people over to their desires in his wrath against their sin so that they'll feel the emptiness of all their sin and of all that they pursue for life that isn't him. That's God's wrath that the world is futile and doesn't work. We are without excuse, all of us, for the sin of not worshiping God since creation itself is evidence enough that we should worship the Creator in 120 and 21. But instead, what Paul reveals is that all human beings have become idolaters, every one of us. Paul reveals that all sin from the worst and biggest to the seemingly insignificant and smallest is the result of our idolatry. That's what's wrong with the human race. We're idol worshipers. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. This is what we do. We're great at it. Making things to worship and bow down before and serve and give ourselves to that aren't God. And in verses 22 to 32, Paul says that what we observe in humanity, the world as it is, is the result of this fatal exchange we've made of the true God for false ones. And the fact that we keep on sinning, even though it destroys us, reveals that God's wrath is being poured out on us even now. God punishes those who worship false gods by letting them do it. We are in an inescapably hopeless predicament as human beings. That is the argument that brings us in to the first verses in chapter 2. Besides the fact that we're all willing idolaters... We have the audacity to be judgy, to judge others for their sin in order to justify ourselves as righteous. Notice that word again in verse 1, therefore. What's it? Therefore. Not one single human being has an excuse for not worshiping God alone. We know for a fact deep down in our souls that we deserve death and judgment for worshiping things other than God by our sin, but we want to do those things. So we keep doing them and approve of that kind of self-seeking sinfulness, fatal insanity in others. Since that's true about human beings, then Paul says it is insane for humans to judge the sinfulness of other humans as though they too aren't guilty of the same things. So notice what he's building here since he's talking to Christians. You could say as you read the first part of Romans 1, well, I'm not a homosexual, right? but you are an idolater which comes out even in the sin of things like gossip in chapter 1, verse 29. Do we think that deeply about our own sinfulness, which raises our awareness of our need, that gossip is idolatry? I'm worshiping myself and what I might gain by gossiping. What seems so light a thing and so normal a thing is idolatry. This is what nailed Jesus to the cross in the justice of God, the reality of our universal guilt before God. No matter what sins our personal idolatry produces should prove to us categorically that we have no business looking down on other people for their sins. It's very interesting that the 
first implication of how depraved human beings are in chapter 1 is that they judge others in their own self-righteousness in chapter 2. To God, that is absolute insanity that we are like this. Now, there's a good case to be made here, and it's textually sound, that Paul is speaking immediately, in other words, in the, in the first sense, to the Jewish Christians in Rome. Clearly, from 118 to 32, the Gentiles of the world, the pagans as they would have seen them, are without excuse. But the Jews who judge Gentiles for doing what they do, do so precisely because they're aware of how sinful Gentiles are. How so? The Jews know there is a divine law that these people are breaking. That God has said more than just what He's revealed in creation about what He requires of humanity. And they don't follow that. They don't obey it. We're all guilty of such judging. But Paul, most of all, wants the Jews to see it here because they give themselves a free pass. So he's talking immediately to the Jewish Christians in Rome, but then by extension of the Holy Spirit to Christians who have never looked in a mirror with objectivity, right? So we're all guilty of this. That's why he makes it sound so general. He basically says to the Jewish Christians in Rome, those of you who know that what these things are is sin, do you yourselves keep the laws that you are judging them and looking down on them for breaking? The implied answer of this rhetorical question is, no, you don't. That's why he's writing that way. A Jewish person could know he or she was a sinner, acknowledge that, yes, they had struggles, but at least in their own mind, could fall back on the fact that I'm, I'm Jewish, right? They're Jewish, so he or she still belonged to God's people, though, right? That's what they could say, and apparently were saying. This was such a common belief. This is actually written about in Jewish literature that was written around the time of the Old Testament. And one of the apocryphal books called Wisdom said that while Gentiles would be condemned in wrath for their sin, the Jews would be instructed with gentleness for their sin. And this belief was so prevalent among the Jews, obviously, that Paul doesn't even need to say who he's accusing of judging. That's what they did. Those who are quick to judge people for such depravity, in verse 1, Paul says, you do the exact same things. The difference is you think that you have special status, so you'll be dealt gently with for it. Paul says, is that what you really think that your privileged status as the Jewish people means? Do you really think you're going to escape judgment? That God will just put up with your sinfulness forever and you have no need of repentance. And it is very easy to take this word to the Jewish people and apply it to the church today. Do you really think that God's ongoing patience means that He isn't ever going to judge? Who's sitting in this church right now this morning honestly believes that he or she does not need God's kindness, patience and forbearance who actually believes that nobody would say I believe that beloved Paul would say that is the heart that a life of unrepentance reveals in fact most of the world believes that about themselves. And many of us, for certain, believe that this morning. They were just a little more privileged, a little more aware, right? And so we kind of deserve the goodness we get from God because we are trying really hard, at least we care, etc., etc., etc. It's amazing the ways that we will justify our own sinfulness normally by our works or our service or our giving or all these types of things that we use as markers for our maturity and growth as Christians. Most of the world believes that they deserve special status from God. If there is a God, if they're willing to admit He exists, the world would further demean God by hearing this word, complaining to Him that He's unjust for judging them. Now, Christians may not take the same um, route of hatred towards God for this, but we may come to believe that while we used to be worthy of God's wrath, yes, now we're not. 
So we are in a position to judge others because we're not like them. And this is, this is everywhere. Like, we all know you look dumb with saggy pants. Okay? If you were, if you have on saggy pants this morning, I'm sorry, you, you look dumb. Like, especially if they're down by your knees. Okay? But like, does that really need to make people angry? Like, if you look on, like, don't let somebody see you in a CVS with saggy pants. They're gonna take a picture of you and post it on Facebook and be like, when I was a kid, you pulled your pants up or something, you know. Well, my goodness, you were better than us, right? When I was a kid, you used the phone and you were in when the streetlights were up. That's, yes, you're, you're better than us because you didn't have cell phones, right? It just, it, it, the judgment never, ever, ever stops. And it's on everything. I mean, everything. This is what we do. This is, this is humanity. And it's so tragically ironic and pitiful. How could we be judgy people? We do think as Christians sometimes that we're in a position to judge others because we're not like them. No, no, no. We sin differently than them. And sometimes not even that. We just hide it better because we're trying to, right? This text is one in Romans that proves to us just how much Paul based his doctrines and teachings on those of Jesus Christ. Romans 2.1 sounds very familiar if you, if you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and how Jesus talked about judgment. He said not to judge by appearances, but to judge with righteous judgment. So every time we judge by appearances, we're sinning, right? That's how deep the sin stain goes. It means that righteous judgment is not based on appearances. When Jesus teaches not to judge, lest you would be judged, he doesn't mean there's never a place for any kind of judgment. He does mean that if you're going to judge people, whether you are a Christian or not, you had better know you aren't guilty of any sin before you do it. Jesus knows what we're all like. That's why he talks the way that he does. Jesus did not connect himself like this or attach himself, John says, to people because he knew what was in people. We're all found in 118 to 21. That, that's, a, that's an explanation of humanity. Our foolish hearts have been darkened. We can't see clearly, but we are certain that we can, which makes us all the more blind and ironically judgmental. Paul doesn't simply propose there might be some Jewish Christians or Christians in Rome that pass judgment on others, even though they do the very same things. He knows there are in verse 1. You see him generalizing. He knows they are. In fact, in verse 2, even though the Jewish Christians in Rome knew more than the others in the world, namely that God is a God who judges people who practice such things, they thought somehow they were going to escape judgment when they also did those same things. But there's no man-made escape from the judgment of God, Jew or not. Right? In fact, think about Jonah. Jonah didn't, I think, we often think that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was a scared, he was afraid of the Ninevites. Beloved, he knew how God was. That's what he says. When they repent, he's furious. He's like, I knew, and he says it, I knew that you were a merciful God. Dang it, I knew you were slow to anger. I knew if these barbarians repented, you would forgive them. And I came here to watch this city burn. That's us. That's us. We know. And we still sin and we still feel the way that we do. Forget the fact that humans judge in verses 1 and 2. Of course we do. But we judge from our own perspective. To us, certain sins or sinners do look worse than others simply because the, the druggie on Skid Row looks worse than the ethics professor at OSU or WVU, right? They just look different. But humans aren't the only ones judging we're just the only ones for whom judging makes no sense. In verse 3, God is also judging. And nobody is in a position to judge the sinfulness of others from God's perspective. No, we're all caught in the same mess. We're just all too sinful still to realize the truth of this. In John Warwick Montgomery's lecture series on Romans, he talks about how it's easy to judge the sin hobbies of others when we're certain we don't have the same guilt they do. So, for example, he, he was an, he, he's an older gentleman. He talks about the older you get as a believer, the more you tend to be very strong in your stance against premarital sex or homosexuality or lust, right? That's an older gentleman speaking, so don't shoot the messenger. 
Right? He just said as, as your body becomes more and more unable to do certain things, you get very judgy about people that still can and struggle with it. That's what he's saying. When we're too old to be tempted by a sin anymore, we focus on the people that are still committing those sins precisely because we aren't. And then we start to think, well, I'm not bad like that. It doesn't matter if you're bad like that. What matters is that we're all idolaters. We, we, we become very judgmental about certain people that caught in certain sins while ignoring, flat out ignoring the idolatry of our own ongoing idolatry and sinfulness and things like backbiting, bitterness, gossiping, complaining, murmuring. Beloved, these are sins. Sins for which Christ Jesus died to atone. Right? But we don't think of them as sins. We just, that's who I am. That's what I do. Right? We, we talk, we're, we're proud of this. Right? I, I call it like I see it. I love the way people justify rudeness and being harsh. I, I just, I just tell the truth. No, you're just rude. Right? There's a way to speak as Christians to one another. Right? It's, we ignore these things. That, that's what we do so that we don't feel as sinful. Which means we haven't really caught on to what the gospel does for people yet. So it's easy to tee off on sins that we don't commit. There's so much carnality in the church. You, you could change denominations. Churches are all basically the same. Why? Because people are people. Right? That, that, that's what we are. That they were fighting over stuff in church when I was a kid. The churches are still fighting over now. And people get nasty with each other and go crossways and you get little factions. It's like, who would want to be a part of that? I mean, we're, we're telling, you know, we think about the world. Well, they just don't want to hear the truth. They, they don't want to. Yeah, that's there. Absolutely. But it's also that, like, why would I deal with that at church? I deal with that at work. It's nothing like an embassy of heaven. Are you kidding me? They're fighting over like chairs and th- like, why would I be a part of that? Right. But we don't think of that as idolatry. It is idolatry. If I just get up and talk about homosexuality and abortion, this is an echo chamber. I can get a lot of really loud amens. But that's not the only sin and idolatry in the world. Of course it is. But so is talking about your neighbor behind their back. Right? And worse is trying to justify it. Well, I, what I say about people is true. I just... Well, but what difference does that make? Right? You can't just knife people in the back and claim the name of Christ without any repentance. And this is what we all do. We, we, we do it so often and so naturally we don't even realize I'm an idolater. That's why I can't shut my own mouth. I love myself. I want to speak. I want to be heard. I want my opinion to get traction and people to be on my side and not on their side. And our Savior died for us. There's so much sin in us and bitterness and ugliness and gossip and murmuring and complaining. And all sin is the fruit of idolatry in our own hearts. Look at the list in 129 to 31. That's where most of us will find ourselves. I don't know why in the world we think we're fit to judge other people and despise them and look down our noses in disgust. When in our own hearts that no, we shouldn't do this, we keep doing it and we don't care and we don't repent. Paul says this type of judging is completely unrealistic because there's no difference between sinners. It doesn't matter how we look to other people. And the sad thing is, that's what we're all trying so hard to work for, is to be thought of well in other people's eyes. Right? It matters how we look to God. And do we have any concept anymore in the church, in the church of how rotten our ongoing unrepentant sin is? Of how divisive and satanic it is. Satanic. To fight for our own way. To demand our preferences and expectations are met. To demand 
that the things we like be forced on people, even if they don't like it, because I like it, right? I don't care. This is my church. I give the money here. I've gone here since I was little. Every church, the people talk like that. You know who really runs the church and every church that exists, right? Those people stay. Everybody else comes and goes, right? Nobody's willing to look in the mirror, right? The, 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 I'm the bad guy now because I, I brought it up, right? Nobody ever looks in the mirror. Beloved, where is the spirit of Jesus in his church? Where? This is not how, this is not who God has made us. It's not why he's made us new, right? To continue to judge others while justifying ourselves. That's precisely what this kind of sinning is among those who know better. That's what it is. What are we doing taking one moment of our time to be angry and condemning and dismissive of others? Where is our repentance? Where is our repentance for these things? Instead of just saying, no, 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 this is it's what I want. This is my way. I'm not going to question how I feel about things. I'm not going to question whether maybe I'm wrong. And you know what? I thought about it, and I'm not wrong. I'm right. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Beloved, what is the opposite of presumption? Repentance. Repentance. He's talking to Christians. Yes, God is gracious to us and merciful to us in the face of all our sins and presumption and arrogance. Yes, a million times. Yes, to lead us to repentance. Not because our sin hasn't been atoned for, but because we need to see the cross progressively more clearly. The church in America in large part is hamstrung by self-righteous, willfully arrogant and ignorant Nonsense, beloved. Nonsense. There's a, uh, we're still fighting over mice while lions devour. My dad used to say that all the time from the pulpit. I remember that. There's a preacher this week that's in trouble. We don't really know what has happened. Large church, about 15,000 people down in Texas, and it's kind of vague what's going on, but basically, more or less, what happened is, is that there were these two, he was, he and his wife are friends with another couple. They all text each other, you know, talking jokes and stuff like that. And the husband apparently texted something to the wife that that other wife's friend saw and found it offensive and went to the elders and said, and and so there's this, this big thing going on. And look, I don't know the details, so I'm not uh, supporting either side here. I don't know because, like I said, it's very vague. However, I would say this, like if that's where we are now, that, that we're just like, like you, you can't make jokes. Like, I mean, you need to be appropriate. Please don't misunderstand me. But like, why is just everybody's evaluation just brought to the forefront? Well, that offends me. So I, I like, I want that dealt with, right? You know, if it's wrong and sinful, absolutely. Absolutely. If it's a difference of opinion or a freedom of conscience, like we're, we're going to fire people over this now. We're, we're going to like, completely disregard the mercy of God at work in others. We just, we create things to judge. We create things to hold over people's heads. Just why are, why are we like this? I thought we all knew we were sinners. You would think that would soften us up a little bit towards, you know, sinners. How do we get so hard in our own hearts? All the infighting, the expectations, the demands and preferences and traditions and nothing holds a church in stasis like traditions. Nothing. Nothing. When among us are those so broken right now, they can hardly think straight. You have people in our church right now that literally have no idea what to do next in their lives, in the situations they're in. I know of some of them. I probably don't know of all of them, right? That's what's going on because we're people. We're Stuck. If people that are so alone, they're a moment away from ending it all. We have that in our church. So sinful, they don't know where to turn. So hopeless that nothing seems to soothe their souls. And what do we do 
What do we do with the time that God has given us, with the mercies shed on us? Do we live lives of constant repentance in light of God's kindness, which is what like real recognizes real? When 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 you are like that, you begin to see it in others because you're you're instead of looking up with your nose in the air, you're looking towards people. Do we live lives of constant repentance in light of God's kindness? Or do we assume that we're all good? It's everyone else that's a mess. Don't let anybody know I'm a mess. And the world would be a lot better if everybody just did what I wanted and liked what I liked. And we continue to live these insane lives of like, no, my way. Like you have to like my way and accept my way. And justifying that. And just Satan has steamrolled the church, beloved. Steamrolled it. Do words like that, when you hear them, even make a dent anymore? You know? Words like that even make a dent, or are we here because this is what you do, and we're sure there's somebody in the church that needs to hear this. I I promise you I'm talking to you. I promise. Is he talking about me? Yeah. Yeah. We cannot be so stubborn and proud and set in our ways that it turns us against others. We cannot. So, beloved, look to Christ. Look at God's kindness towards you and repent. These things are not just suggested about us. They're proven by us. And the question Paul is asking is, is is, is God's kindness not good enough for us? Is it not enough to lead us to repentance for our sin? Are we unable to even admit that we have sin? That what we do is sin? Enough sin according to Scripture that we have no business judging others for theirs. Look at verse 5 again. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, talking to Christians, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I thought Jesus propitiated God's wrath. He did for repenters. The mark of the Christian is not perfection. The mark of the Christian is not the effort to attain perfection. The mark of the Christian is repentance. The first thing we have to learn to assume of ourselves as Christians is that I need to repent because I'm an idolater. That's what God has saved me from. He didn't make me not an idolater. That's what I am. He declared me righteous in spite of it and washed away by atoning the guilt for it. But that's who I am. The ongoing refusal to repent is not the mark of God's children. Beloved, have all the assurance in the universe as a Christian if you repent of your sin. Even if you have to repent for doing the same sin 10,000 times in one day. Be assured that you are safe in Christ with no doubt or fear whatsoever. But take no comfort and have no assurance if you flat out refuse to repent, especially for the things you know are sins and don't care. Don't you dare claim the name of Christ. Right? We can't. Why? Because those who claim the name of Christ are repentant people. Don't think God won't judge professing Christians who wreak havoc on His church and on His people with their selfishness and unrepentance, beloved. Woe to any of us who do this. The pastors are as capable of it as anyone else. We are so corrupted in our flesh, even as believers... That we don't know how to properly diagnose ourselves, so we certainly don't know how to diagnose others. Bring all that to Jesus and lay it down. He will forgive you. He will forgive you. We're not enemies. We are family. We are not insignificant in the Ohio Valley. Nor are we here to have a nice place just for us to draw near to God. That's not what we're trying to do here. Make sure that we preserve what we like so that we'll keep liking it. And our kids will. That is not the mission of the church. If that's what we want to do, we, we need to call ourselves something else, but not a church. 
if we aren't broken by our own sinfulness, if we don't recognize our own bent towards selfishness in everything, all we will ever be is self-righteous towards people about theirs, and there's no light there. So we need to break as people. We need to repent if we want to have a lampstand, right? Let Him wash over you this morning in waves, beloved. Do we know how kind He is? Do we realize how gracious and patient and merciful God is with us? How are we still here? Any of us, He watches us day after day, trample His Son's blood under our feet, and all He does is draw nearer and nearer and nearer with His forgiveness while we fight so hard to push Him away, to serve ourselves and feed our flesh all the while claiming He's our Father. Do we treat our earthly fathers with such disregard and disrespect? Some of us wouldn't even speak a bad word about a father, but we have no issue treating God with such disregard that what He has called sin, we try to justify and are willing to look down on others for doing when we aren't any different from them. Beloved, let, let Him love you. Let Him be kind to you and repent you. And I meant to say it that way. This is how Joshua prays, or, or Jeremiah prays. Turn thou me, and I will be turned. That's what he says. You know, that's the word. Repent me, God, and I will be repented. I will repent, right? Help me, Father, because I can't see. Right? I, God, I, I don't see myself clearly enough. You've got to help me. I'm sinning in places I don't even know. And it, it's not to send you out to be a, questioning every step you make. Am I sinning? No, no, no. Just listen. Beloved, by nature, we're idolaters. At the very least, we need to, to question ourselves before we assert ourselves. And if any of us honestly believes we don't need constant repentance, that we are not so bent inwardly on ourselves that we can't spiritually see straight. If we don't think this, no matter how long we've been a Christian, we're acting fundamentally unchristian by being unrepentant. It doesn't matter what else is going on, right? Good works don't outweigh bad ones on God's scales, right? We must repent, be a repentant people. Hard and impenitent hearts, that is, unrepentant hearts, store up wrath. I'm a Christian, then repent, right? To live a lifestyle of unrepentance in light of God's immeasurable kindness is to deny the very work His Son accomplished so we could experience that. Nothing questions a person's credibility as a Christian more than unrepentance. Nothing makes us look more unchristian than unrepentance. Now, we probably don't agree with that. And we're thinking of a sin that would make you look... that Definitely, they're not a Christian. Paul would say, you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Paul would say, I'm a Christian. Do you repent? Paul's not going to say, when did you pray the prayer? You say, are you repentant? Right now, today, right now? Do we even filter our thoughts and words and actions and attitudes through Jesus? Or do we just live and expect God to keep up? Right? Where is the brokenness and the repentance that characterizes the people of God? There will be no salvation for people who refuse repentance. That's what the verse is trying to say to all of us. Yes, God's wrath is being poured out on all people in their ongoing sinfulness, having been given up to their sinful wills, but there is a day of wrath coming also when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, when God reveals to the world in wrath that this is why we suffer, because we've rejected Him. That day will out every hypocrite, every false professor, every unbelieving person. And there's nothing, again, there's nothing that characterizes unbelief more than unrepentance. Beloved, because here's the thing. Jesus is not unable or unwilling to deal with us in our sin. He defanged it for us on the cross. The sin problem in us has been addressed when it comes to our salvation. Our ongoing sin, then, is not too much for His blood to wash. 
or for his righteousness to replace. It's unbelief expressed in unrepentance, refusal to repent, or to see that we should, that condemns us. It brings wrath. Why? Because Christians repent. God is saying to us, how dare we reject the offering of his son? This is there for you. We think it's our sin that dims the light in us. So what we work so hard to do is make sure we look holy. I don't want to be humble, but I want other people to think I'm humble. Things like this. We work so hard to look like we're not struggling with sin. But but that's not the light. That's not salt. Everybody's trying to look better than what they are, Christian or not. We should be in a constant state of recognition and repentance. It's there that we'll feel assurance. That we'll know that the blood is washing over us, that we have nothing to fear. But if we refuse to repent, there's no quarter given for us here. The people of the cross are marked primarily by their recognition of our need for it. I need Jesus to be that for me. I need his blood covering me every day. I need his righteousness replacing mine every day. I'm I'm not telling anyone that you aren't saved, right? I'm telling us that if we don't, if we live a life of unrepentance, we aren't acting like a Christian and we're really acting like a hypocrite. Denying sin and unrepentance stores up wrath. It's repentance that brings the blood of Jesus that removes wrath forever. So let us be a people of repentance. Let that be the mark of Moundsville Baptist Church. All those people do is talk about Jesus' covering for their sin. Guilty as charged. Please. Please. Verse 6. need to hurry here. Verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. That should terrify everybody in here. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. See, that's where that's coming from now. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. That's weird to say after what he said in 9 and 10. But what is Paul Paul saying? Wait a minute here. That after all, we are justified by works. If you do good, you're accepted. If you do bad, you're not. Is he going back on everything he just said about the gospel and the righteousness of God and being a gift to those who have faith in his son? Is he going against all that? Is he changing his mind? Is he contradicting himself? What does he mean here? Well, let's follow his argument quickly. In verse 6, he makes it clear that God will most certainly judge each one of us by our works. So to those good people who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life in verse 7. Doesn't mean anybody can pull that off. Just means that if they do, you're good. If you're perfect, nothing to worry about. So before we would say, okay, so be patient, seek for glory and honor as God sees it, and I'll have eternal life. I've got to make sure that I'm not self-seeking or disobedient and unrighteous in verse 8. We need to remember what came before this and prepare ourselves for what comes after in the next few weeks. Yes, if we live perfectly, we'll have eternal life, but, but the point is no one can. So why would you think that way, right? Who reads 1, 18 through 32 or really 118 to 2-1 honestly, and believes what he just said here is remotely possible. And that's, that's what chapter 3 is about. Paul's like, I just, I'm going to tell you that if you do the law, you'll be justified by it. And then I'm going to tell you that nobody has ever done that, and nobody is good. So we need something better, right? That's, that's the flow of Romans. See what Paul is doing here. He's driving Christians to our need for the gospel. Our need for the gospel. If there were such a one on the earth, they'd be justified for it. But there isn't one like this. 
in 118 to 2.1. What we render to God, what we give to him or try to give, merits nothing but his wrath and judgment. Even the good works are in offense to him because they're not anywhere near what is good enough for God. Not because he's stuck up and looking down on us, because he's God. Look at how Paul describes the life of those storing up wrath and fury by their sin. It's not just they're going to experience it on that day in the future. They're experiencing it now. Life is hard, and they keep thinking that I just need to get what I want, and I'll be okay. Not realizing that that's God's wrath on you to turn you from yourself to Him. We're we're bent in on ourselves. We can't see this. And being saved gives us the knowledge that we're like that. But as Paul will say in Romans 7, I do know what I should do. I do know what is right. And I can't do it. That is how we should talk as believers. You don't, we don't demean good works. Good works are glorious unto God. When a saved person does them by grace through faith, but they, they aren't, they aren't meriting anything. They're not doing anything. They're not, they're not changing our nature. That, that we are in the flesh. We're in these bodies. We have something fighting against us all the time. None of us can just kind of say, well, you know, I used to be like that. Now I'm like this. Beloved, do we really think that the path of the Christian is one from cussing to non-cussing? That now, and that, look, you don't cuss. All right, don't, I don't want any little kid running out of here today saying a cuss word. Pastor said I could cuss. No, he didn't. All right, don't be blaming me for your little toilet mouth. I didn't do it. Okay, so here's the thing. Beloved, we, we, we need this gospel to do its work. God does everything He does in us so that it's clear. Salvation comes from heaven and not from earth. And so what He's doing here, I think when He's, we, when he's talking about, you know, Jew and, and Greek. Greek is a catch-all word in this period for Gentile. If you weren't a Jew, they would have called you a Greek. God is not a respecter of persons. So when he makes these distinctions here to the, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile, he's meaning none of us has an advantage so great that it makes God treat us better because of it. Faith is the only thing, the only righteousness God will accept. And what Romans is teaching us is that we, we aren't even going to be able to produce the faith. So all we're going to be able to do is bow our head, beat our chest and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. These are the words that move heaven, beloved. Jew and Gentile have completely equal opportunity to be saved. So we're not different in any respect relative to salvation. So we need to realize the Jewish nation isn't going to be saved in some magical way by virtue of their nationality. Nor are they currently some type of proxy Christian nation and everything they do is commended by God. No, no, no. Their, their house has been forsaken. They murdered the Messiah. They exist as Israel, this tiny little country, as a means of showing something about God to the world. And that privilege carried with it a certain responsibility. And because of that, Paul is saying, if you violate that privilege, a Jewish person will receive wrath to a far greater extent than the one who hasn't received that privilege. And it's the same for salvation. Because through you, Israel came the Messiah. So you had the opportunity to hear the good news first before the world ever did, that there is forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of the fact that we're so wicked and idolatrous and unaware of ourselves that we judge others and try to justify ourselves. The good news this morning is that God knows that's what we're like, and His response to that is to send His Son. God chose Israel because He was choosing choosing the weak things of the world to shame the wise. So that there was nothing Jesus could have said, not even his pedigree, that I have certain advantages. That's why he came in such meekness. He had no advantage in the world. It's repentance, the recognition of our ongoing and desperate need for Jesus to be our whole forgiveness and our whole righteousness. Will always That will always be what turns us away from ourselves and turns people away from us and towards Christ. So every one of you who judges... It's almost as though the Spirit of God in Scripture is addressing those most of the time who honestly think, in spite of all that's sinful about them, that they are good and right and just. Right? Forget how much sins like murder make us look unrighteous, okay? Nothing makes our sinful humanity more obvious than a self-righteousness and blithering lack of self-awareness that leads us not only to judge other people as unworthy and beneath us, 
as we refuse to acknowledge or repent of our own, of our own ongoing sinfulness. The world is filled with people like this. The church is filled with people like this. We judge by appearances, not always by the truth. We judge people based on what they've done or are doing. God judges people on, based on what Jesus has done, whether we receive Him or reject Him. And He's not only an impartial judge, He's an impartial Savior. This is what the text reveals. We are all equally accountable and equally savable. What we are, He sees what we are right now. God sees what we all are right here, right now. God knows what we're hiding. God knows what we're lying about. God knows what we're doing, what we're thinking. We're laid bare before Him by the sword of His Word. And His response is patience, so that by the hearing of the Gospel, we'll have faith and be saved. And our nationality, our ethnicity, our burdens, the weights we carry, our messes, our sins, no matter how obvious or not, do nothing to ruin the Gospel. And everything that we do that is good does nothing to obtain the promise of the gospel for us. He judges based on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So if there's going to be a Savior, it has to be Him. It has to be the judge. And He is a Savior for us in Christ. He saves based on Jesus, the whole Jesus, and nothing but Jesus. No matter how good we are or become, it will never earn our salvation or keep it, and our sins will never ruin it. Repentance is a word for the saved and the unsaved, since both are human. So church, look to Christ and be saved. Look to Christ.